0: Um, I want to go, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. And we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount. We go through the text of Scripture verse by verse, and we try to explain what it means and apply it to our lives. We know that this is the Word of God. And so if God has spoken, it becomes our responsibility to understand what He said, to submit ourselves to it, to apply this to our lives, to conform ourselves to it. And now we arrive at this most important topic of prayer. Uh, The topic of prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to invite you to look at Matthew chapter 6. If you have your Bible, I would prefer that you have it open, that you're looking at it, that you can see it with us. Because we're going to talk about prayer specifically, maybe the most famous passage in the New Testament, the Lord's Prayer. I want to ask you a question that'll get us started. How do you pray? A man by the name of E.M. Bounds, a preacher, but who also was known to be a prayer warrior, wrote many books about prayer. He said this, What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more in novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use. Men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men, men of prayer, and I would extend that to include women, women of prayer. In other words, he's saying it doesn't come down to the strategies we have and the plans we put together, but ultimately, it comes down to Him working among us, and He works among us as we plead with Him in our prayers. So how do you pray? Last week, we were looking at this, and it begged us to ask a question that pierced us, uh, the question of, well, what is our prayer life like? Because that is a window into what we actually believe. How you pray when no one's looking, when all pretension's gone, when you're not trying to impress anyone, is the highest and most clearest barometer of your actual walk with the Lord. Who you are in your prayers is who you are. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way, The highest activity of the human soul is prayer. And therefore, it is at the same time the ultimate test of a man's true spiritual condition. There is nothing that tells the truth about us as Christian people so much as our prayer life. And in this section on the Sermon on the Mount we've been looking at, Jesus is so concerned about the heart and not just doing things externally as the Pharisees do not just practicing our righteousness to be seen by men and so he wants to get right to who we are our essential character and examine that and the way you examine your essential character and one of the primary ways is to ask yourself how do you pray? I think your prayers reveal what you actually believe you can write a doctrinal statement and that's good and we have those You could sign it off, and you could be be perfectly orthodox. Theologians have delineated their views on every topic imaginable. Christology, angelology, soteriology, anthropology, and you could get tomes. Thousands of pages, it's been done, of theologians writing down truths about God, and about themselves, and about angels, and about end times. But if you want to know what they actually believe, go look at them in their private prayers. Listen to what they pray for. Because that's what they really believe. That's what they believe in their core. That's how they think about God. That's how they think about themselves. That's how they think about their role in the world and their role in God's plan. I remember talking to someone who was saying he had a hard time in his prayer life. He wasn't very committed and he was often struggling to find time to pray. And we were talking and I tried to, to press him a little bit on this issue. Because it almost seemed like he made it the primary reason why he didn't pray much because he was too busy. Which I wanted to push against that thought. And so I asked him, I asked, so, so what does your prayerlessness say about you and what you believe? He says, what do you mean? And I said, think about this, a person who doesn't pray, what is it that they actually believe about God? I mean, if you don't pray, doesn't it convey the belief that you actually don't really think God is worth talking to very much? If you don't pray very much, doesn't that convey a belief that maybe God is irrelevant? What does it say about yourself if you don't pray? Does it say that you think you're self-sufficient? You can do everything God's called you to do without his help? You don't need him? Does it say about yourself if you don't pray that you think you're powerful enough, good enough, sufficient enough? What does it say about your own calling in the world if you never pray? You think you can do all the things that God has called you to do without praying? You got it all in yourself. You're self-sufficient. You're a self-made man or woman. I tried to press on him this reality. I said, "Hey, your prayer life is the barometer of your Christian life. This is how you really know. I mean, this is all the pretension. Every other motivation to impress other people is swept." away in the presence of God alone when you're in private with Him and you have to talk to Him face to face alone with God. That's how you know who you are. That's how you know where you are. And so here we are in Matthew chapter 6 and he starts going through the Lord's prayer and it's almost like he slows down. He's been talking about giving. He talks about prayer and he talks about fasting. But in this culture, the way you would emphasize something would be to put it right in the middle of your sermon. And so as he talks about giving on the front end, And then he talks about fasting on the back end and ways not to do that and ways to do that. He then talks right in the middle of how to pray. And he spends a little bit of extra time here. He slows down a little bit. Jesus, I think, wants to emphasize your prayer life because I think he wants you to examine it and he wants you to ask those hard questions. Friends, I think for us this morning, one of the things he wants you to ask is how do you pray? How is your prayer life? Take inventory for a second. How do you pray? What do you pray for? What are those events or circumstances in life to just build up the pressure that caused you to cry to God? What is it that is bringing you to your knees? What is it that caused you to pray? How do you pray? What are your prayers like? One of my favorite things to do in In reading, I like reading, but one of my favorite exercises is to read about those giants of the faith who went before us. Those who who have really shaped uh, much of what the Christian church is like today. Their devotion to prayer is one thing that always sticks out. It it really convicts us when we read these things. And These giants who have prayed and they prayed and have shaped the church by their prayers and by their teaching and by their lives uh, often dwarf us. And I have to confess, often I walk away from reading things in history about people who really knew how to pray feeling like a flabby Christian, completely out of shape or completely distracted from the things I know I'm supposed to do. And you think through church history, of course, our Lord begins it as someone who all throughout the Gospels, you read, often excludes himself from the crowds to go and withdraw to pray. I mean, the Son of God, the perfect Son of God without us in nature is praying. How much more do we pray? Martin Luther has said that he, on average, prayed for two hours every day in private. It has been said that he led the Reformation from his knees. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a famous preacher in Wales read much about him, how his preaching expositorily through the text, impacted thousands as they gathered to hear the Word of God. He was also an evangelist, making the gospel known, and people flocked in to hear him and got saved under his ministry through the mid-1900s. And after he died, there was a gathering of his supporters, a bunch of men who were also pastors and ministers, and they're paying compliments. They were saying how great of a preacher he was and how faithful an evangelist he was and his faithful and quiet wife was sitting listening to them when, he, when she surprised the group by quietly but firmly remarking no one will ever understand my husband until they understand that he was first of all a man of prayer. Then he was an evangelist. See, it was prayer that began the ministry. It was prayer that ignited the Reformation. It was people pleading with their God to come and act. In 1651, there was a group of Scottish pastors who felt they had been dropping the ball in their pastoral ministry. And so they made a confession and they made a list of things they felt they needed to confess. And right there on that list was prayerlessness. They felt they hadn't prayed the way that they ought to pray. And these people of old, even often, even the ones like Luther and Lloyd Jones and others who have been prayer warriors, even they have felt that they were inadequate in their prayers. Because when you see who God is and you take in the staggering promises of Jesus about how he answers prayers, how could we not pray more? And so they confessed that they were prayerless. If you consider even them, what do you think these giants of the faith looking at our generation would say about our prayer lives? About yours? About my own? Guys, we live in an interesting generation, don't we? Ah, These people that I mentioned didn't wrestle with the same temptations that we do to waste hours standing in front of a TV screen or flipping through posts on Facebook or Instagram. Twitter, or you name whatever social media that you use, they didn't live in the deluge of distraction having phones, no, 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 not phones, supercomputers in their pockets where they can get any access to any piece of information or any notification at any time, morning till night. Aren't we uniquely tempted to waste hours, divide attention, be distracted? I mean, let's be honest. How often have you tried to pray only to be interrupted by a beep or a buzz or a TV screen or your own distracted mind? You start thinking about the things you got to do that day. You start thinking about the problems in the family. You start thinking about your job and prayer. Whew, it's gone. See, when the early church faced a dilemma, remember that in the Acts chapter 6? They said, well, there's a problem here. We need to give some attention to a portion of our flock. But they came up with this resolution. But there's one thing, we, actually two things we can't leave behind. We're going to devote ourselves to the Word and what? Prayer. And how often in our own lives when we get busy, those are the first two things to go. And may it not be so in the church that if we get busy, if things ever start happening in a way that we're bringing people, there's a lot of things going on and a lot of excitement around here, may it never be that the Word gets set aside and that prayer gets set aside. And if we can look back on the ages of church history and we can often... Diagnose some of their problems with 2020 vision. We look back and we see the early church was maybe too obsessed with this aspect, and in the Middle Ages maybe we're too obsessed with mysticism. You could, we always have 2020 vision, looking in the past, and we could diagnose everyone else's problems. But I wonder if, if a generation from now or two generations from now looks back on us and they analyze who we were, I have to wonder. If they'll call us shallow and distracted and prayerless, could it be that our prayer lives are embarrassingly shallow? And I don't say this to discourage. I want to wake us up to this great calling that Christ invites us into In Matthew chapter 6, as he invites us to pray in the right way. Go to Matthew chapter 6. I think you're already there. I want you to see it. Here we come to the Lord's Prayer. Oh, there go some pages. It's all right. We're there in the Lord's Prayer. And I want to back up a little bit. I want to start in verse 5, where he begins this section on prayer. So follow along with me, and we're going to read in verse 5. He says in verse 5, And when you pray... but deliver us from evil. I want to enter now into Christ's school of prayer. I think we all probably feel a sense of inadequacy in our prayers. I think it's normal for us, contemplating the greatness of God, to feel inadequate in the way we address him. And so what better way to learn about prayer to God than from the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, teaching us how to address him? And I want to start by looking at the warning, the first warning that Jesus gives us in his school of prayer. Here's the first takeaway, the warning, and I want to put it in this phraseology. I want to say it like this. Watch out for treasonous prayer. If you're note taken, write that down. Watch out for treasonous prayer. Watch out for committing treason in the way you pray. You say, what do I mean? Well, if you read the sections that we just read about the ways that Jesus is saying not to pray, one underlying current of those two ways, he's first saying don't pray to be seen by men. And secondly, he's saying don't pray with all these words like a pagan, thinking that because you use so many words, God's going to hear you more. The underlying problem with both of those prayers is that they're self-centered right what was the first prayer all about don't stop in the synagogue so everyone can see you and that's what they would do at times sometimes these pharisees they would stop they'd put their hands up and they'd begin to pray and the reason they would pray in that way so that everyone would see how great they are and how holy they are and how spiritual they are it was all about them and so it was them in their prayers not trying to give glory to god but to steal glory from god god is king God deserves worship, and they, in the very act of supposed worship, were committing theft with God. Stealing worship was due God, giving it to themselves. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to be seen by others. It was treason. And God would see their prayer, and it would be repugnant to Him. Because it wasn't about God, it wasn't about His glory, it was about Him. And the other warning, he says don't keep praying with all these empty phrases, saying things you don't even know what they mean because you think that if you use enough words that God's going to respond to that by giving you what you want. It was selfish. These prayers, again, they weren't for God. This was their, uh, they saw prayer as a tool in their toolbox that they could use to get what they wanted to get. It was like with how the pagans would use it. They had all kinds of deities and they would address these deities in various ways. And they thought if they just bugged the deity enough that that deity would give them what they wanted. Their prayers weren't about the glory of their gods. It was about getting what they wanted. And this is what Jesus is saying. Don't pray that way, trying to get things just for yourself and thinking you could use formulaic prayers just to get what you want. That's treason. Because it's not putting God as the highest priority in the prayer. They're self-glorifying prayers. These prayers are for selfish gain. See, this is often even religious people. We can pray this way if we're not careful. Which I think is why Jesus included it in the scriptures. Because he knows that even the people who come to church and gather to hear His Word can at times slide into self-glorifying prayers rather than God-glorifying prayers. Thomas Watson, an old Puritan who did a whole book on the Lord's Prayer, he put it this way. Listen to this. He was expressing that some people, even Christians, their prayers can be expressions of their own rebellion. And on the outside it can look like it's Honest and pious, and on the inside, it's their own heart rebelling against God. The Puritan Thomas Watson put it this way. One man is sick, and he prays for health, that he may be among his cups and harlots. Another prays for an estate. He would not only have his belly filled, but his barns. And he would be rich, that he might raise his name, or that having more power in his hands, he may now take fuller revenge on his enemies. It is impiety joined with impudence to pray to God to give us temporal things that we may be the better enabled to serve the devil. That's a powerful statement. See, the first request, look at the Lord's Prayer again with me. Verse 9, pray then like this. Don't pray like the pagans. Don't pray like the self-righteous hypocrites who just want to glorify themselves. Look at what he says. Our Father in heaven, that's who he's addressing. We'll get there in a second. Hallowed be your name. The first request, the first cry of the heart of a disciple of Jesus Christ is that the Father would have His name hallowed, glorified, set apart, treasured, admired. This is what Christians pray for. Lord, show the world how great Your name is. And in fact, this is the underlying current. This is the foundation of every other prayer, even here. Watch this. This is meant to be flavoring every request we ever bring to God, is that in whatever we ask, however we ask, Whatever we ask for is meant to, underneath it, be also a prayer. God, glorify yourself. God, hallow your name. Watch this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. But then he goes on, your kingdom come. Well, why do we want God's kingdom to come? Why do we want the kingdom to come? Why? Because in the kingdom, God's name will be hallowed perfectly. Your will be done. Why do we want God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Because when everyone's doing God's will, what does it do? It gives glory to God. It hallows his name perfectly. Even the practical things. Give us this day our daily bread. A prayer for provision is meant to be a prayer that even underneath that well why do i pray for bread why do i ask for provision so that i could have what i need to continue living for god's glory and if god so decides to not give me the comforts or the bread or the provision that i'm asking for i say well god glory to your name anyway i am here to serve and glorify you why do we want forgiveness so we can live in freedom from sin to Hallow the name of God? Why do we want deliverance from sin? It all comes back to God. Listen, friends, this prayer is God centered. And it is treason if we approach God in our prayers not concerned about Him, him and not concerned about His glory, only to be concerned about ourselves think that would be called treason. Taking for ourselves what is only due God. If you want to see this even more clearly, turn to James chapter 3. Sorry, James chapter 4, verse 3. You turn to James chapter 4, and and James is speaking about this idea of prayer. He's speaking about this idea of prayer. He's warning these believers he's writing to against worldliness and he's saying that even sometimes the worldliness appears even in their own prayers and look at what he says in verse 3 of chapter 4 you ask that's prayer and do not receive okay so here's the problem you're asking God for things but you're not getting what you're asking for why here it is because you ask wrongly so it's a way to come to God and it's a wrong way to approach him says you ask and do not receive why because you ask wrongly To spend it on your passions. You see, here's treasonous prayer being perfectly pictured. You're coming to God not for Him, not for His glory, but for your own passions, your lusts, your own desires. Look at this next verse, verse 4. You adulterous people. And in the Greek, the noun there would be you adulteresses, it's feminine. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? See, James is a- cautioning us. Don't approach God wrongly. Well, how do you approach God wrongly? It's when you come to God in your prayers, you're not concerned about His glory. You're not concerned about His name being hallowed and set apart in the earth. You come just to get what you want. You come just to get something you desire. And he compares it to adultery. I mean, could there be any more harsh words. Uh, These are very clear. This is an act of spiritual adultery. It's like this. This is James' illustration, not my own. He says, it's like a wife asking her husband for money so that she can use it, having a good time with another man. I mean, this is convicting, isn't it? And let's ask ourselves some questions. How often Have your prayers been simply this? You're asking God to give you your idols. Have you ever, in your prayers, you've done nothing more than ask God to polish your golden calf? As religious people who spend a lot of time in prayer, as believers who we know are called to prayer, this is something to be warned about, which is why Jesus warns us about it, which is why James warns us about it. I think the point here is that if we pray without any reference to God, without any reference to His glory, without any reference to His plan and purposes in the world, and we say, "God, I got a plan, and I got an agenda, and here's the things I want in my prayers, and I got my list, and I, God answer my prayers in this way, the way I want it, when I want it." That's treason. Or as James would say, it's adultery. What do you pray for? What's your primary concern in your prayers? If if you had, let's say, a child that listens to your prayers, parents, you do. They listen to your prayers at night, they listen to your prayers around the table, they listen to your prayers at gatherings. And if you had a child that were to listen to your prayers, maybe even your private prayers, and everything they listened to, they took in and they learned from your prayers your priorities. They learned your priorities for life. They learned your priorities in your life as you go out about living your day-to-day. What would that child come to believe you care most about? What would they be convinced is the heart cry of mom and dad? What would they be convinced? This is the passion that drives my parents. This has been convicting for me to think through Because I know that I'm prone at the dinner table or at the bedside to heap up empty phrases just in the way that Jesus tells us not to do. And I need to go back to this and say, if I am praying biblically, it should be this. That my kids see dad cares about God and his glory and his name being heralded and hallowed in all the nations. I don't want my kids to walk away from my household after being raised under my prayers to think that dad most cares about comfort. It's obvious about the way he always prays about sicknesses and health and good and easy days. I don't want that to be the main thing. Now we're going to see that to pray for provision and to pray for health is not a wrong thing to pray. This is why Jesus will say, give us this day our daily bread. This is basic daily need and provision. We should pray for those things. But underneath those requests should be this current, this passion and desire in our own lives. And it should be this, Father, hallowed be your name. So it's treasonous to pray just for ourselves without any regard to the glory of God. Now let's move on to the second lesson we learn in the school of prayer. First, we want to watch out for treasonous prayer. Second, Jesus wants to move our prayers from individual to corporate. Individual to corporate. From my to our. From I to we. Follow me here. Our Father in heaven. First word out of Jesus' mouth as he teaches his disciples to pray, our, our. He is asking God to hallow his name, but he begins by addressing God with the plural pronoun our. What's interesting about this is when you go back to the previous section, Jesus is clearly describing private prayer, isn't he? He has just told his disciples that when you pray, go in private, your father who sees in secret will hear your prayers. And then as he begins to teach his disciples to prayer, even though he has just spoken about private prayer, he begins with the word our, plural. I think this is amazing. And this little idea idea could transform the way you pray. I think what Jesus is getting at is this, that even in the most private personal moments, as you're all alone, face-to-face with God in your prayers, you should feel attached to the greater body of believers that God has saved you into. See, this is the way God works. When He saves someone, He doesn't leave them as a lone ranger. He doesn't leave them all alone, isolated like an island. He draws them into the church. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He's building a building where we're all together, leaning on each other and so the prayer of a Christian is an our prayer, a we prayer, not an I not a my, although those prayers are good and we should pray in that way I think Jesus emphasizes, and this is especially important in our individualistic culture right, that we are prone to only think about our own needs Jesus is teaching us pray this way using this pronoun, our, and that immediately breaks our prayers Out from a shallow or self-centered model into a bigger, inclusive model where we're not only thinking about our needs, but for the needs of our people. The church. I think all true disciples see their prayers like tributaries, all running into the great river of petition to God. And every time you pray, you gotta recognize you're not alone in these prayers that your prayers are meeting up with the prayers of the saints, the prayer of your own church, the prayers of God's people, the bringing them up to God. And we pray with them. Now, we may pray alone, and, and Jesus makes that clear. We ought to pray alone, but this is on the other side, what Jesus emphasizes with the word our, is that we're never alone in praying. There's a family bond we ought to feel when we go to pray. Even if you're all alone, you're praying our And we're we're reminding ourselves every time you say our or we or us, you're reminding yourself that the story of God's redemption is not all about you. It's really helpful to remember that. I mean, have you ever heard a a kid and they're first learning to pray. I mean, I'm guilty of this, first learning to pray. And I like basketball, and so I wanted to pray that I would win every game. And then it dawned on me one day, well, what about the other Christian kid on the other team that's praying to win every game? And I realized often this is, you know, I'm not praying for God. I'm not praying for his glory. I'm almost, you know, who's more righteous? Whose prayer is going to work better? Who can pray faster so it gets to heaven first? These crazy thoughts. And often this is what it is when we just pray for I, me, my, just thinking about our things. And I think this is teaching us, no, broaden it out. It's not all about us here. We're not only thinking about what we want. We're not only thinking about our needs. Those things matter, but those aren't the main things to bring to God. Is only me, 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 me. We're not the great protagonist of the story of God. We're not the center of the story. We're not the main character. It's Christ. It's his bride, the church. And as we pray, Jesus is teaching us, no, think in terms of our Think bigger than just your story. Think bigger than just your needs. I want to challenge you. The next time you pray, it's not wrong. You're not in sin to pray I prayers and my prayers and bring up your needs. Do that. Do that. But try this. Next time you go to prayer, try using like Jesus models here, our Father. Give us This day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. There's not a single individual pronoun there. This will reshape the way you think about praying. And it will reshape even the priorities you have in your prayers. You remember, it's not about me. And that's a great place to be. It's a great place to be. So Jesus is now moving us from individual to corporate prayers. Even in our private prayers, We're alone, but we're not praying alone. And here's a third way that Jesus teaches us in the school of prayer. So he moves us away from treasonous prayer. He moves us away from individualistic prayer that's only concerned about oneself. And now he turns and he begins to move us away from man-centered praying to God-centered praying. That's the third lesson here from the school of prayer. Jesus moves us from man-centered praying to God-centered praying. We already mentioned that the pagans saw prayer as just a tool that they could use to get what they wanted. Uh, We saw how James describes prayer just to get your own passions is treason. And so now I want to look at that first request. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. First, you have to notice this. This is just so encouraging that God reveals Himself to us as Father. Dad, you can come to Him. Our Father in Heaven. And you even see the transcendent and the close. He's in Heaven. He's mighty. He's eternal. And He's a Father. And the prayer to this Heavenly Father is that God would Glorify, and actually the word here is hallowed, which is a word we don't use in English at all anymore, except maybe in Halloween, that word comes from there. Hallowed be your name. What that word actually means, it's translated in other sections of the Bible as sanctify your name, which doesn't mean we're sanctifying God in terms of we're transforming him to be more like Christ, which is how God sanctifies us. What we're talking about in this is that God would set his name apart, that we would treat him differently. To hollow something, to sanctify something, means to set it in a different category, to treat it differently, to treat it as completely uh, separate, other, holy, in a way you treat nothing else. And so the prayer here is that God in his name would be sanctified, treated as holy, set apart, unique, admired, treasured, See, this is God. When he talks about his name, it's just really his name is uh, a small way of saying his character. And all through the Bible, God is revealing his character. He says, I am, I am. He is thus the eternal self-existing one. From eternity past to eternity future, he exists. He is, he is not contingent on anything or anyone. Everything, in fact, is contingent on him. The Bible reveals God to be not only holy, but the first and the last. He says over and over again, I am the first and I am the last. He says in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and I am the Omega. This is our God. He is eternal, self-existing. Every person was created by Him. Every person will meet Him in the end. This is our God, totally, completely sovereign, holy, set apart, unique, different. There's no one like Him. He has also said, when Moses asked, hey, show me your name. And it says that God passed before him and said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious. And God revealed himself not only to be eternal, first and last, existing forever, but also to be the one who demonstrates grace and the one who shows mercy on those who repent and trust in him. And so when we take what Jesus is teaching here, hallowed be your name, we are saying, Lord, in this world, your name is not known. Your character is not known. Your name is, in fact, blasphemed. And so the request, Jesus tells us, this is a request, remember, is this, God Make your name, your character, your eternality, your self-sufficiency, your grace and your mercy, your everything that you are, let it be known in the world. Let everyone see it. Let people hold it. Let people treat it as holy. Now, Christians, this ought to be our passion, that God glorifies himself, that God glorifies, magnifies his name, that God shows himself to be the great treasure that he is. This is the pleading in every prayer. This is the longing in every petition. God, glorify yourself. I think Jesus models this in the garden, right? Not my will, but your will be done. In other words, if me going to the cross to die for the sins of men and to redeem the people that you have called me to redeem, if that glorifies you, even if it costs me excruciating pain, Lord, your will be done. Glory to you. It's not about me. And so Jesus is moving our prayers by calling us to pray for God's glory. He's moving us away from merely praying about our own needs. And again, we will see it's not wrong to pray for your own needs. But the reason we pray for needs is because we want God to be shown as glorious. Do we see this great truth? I'm being gently pushed out of the center of the picture frame here. No longer can we claim to be the center of the narrative. This prayer is revolutionary. It gets us out of the picture. We must confess that this story of redemption is not about us. It's not about me. But isn't it true that often our prayers tend to orbit around our needs, our comforts, our desires, just the things we want, as if I am at the center of the universe and God is here to do my bidding. I'm prone to see myself there. And so my needs, my wants, my cravings, my problems, my obstacles, those are the dominant features of my prayer life. But here in Jesus' school of prayer, that's not even the top of the priority list. And we'll get the needs later. But he's saying, no, it's about me. Life is about me. And so if you need to learn to pray, you need to pray starting with me. It begins with me. Prayer begins with my name being glorified. That is your fundamental passion. The name of God being loved. This is God revealing that life is about him. I mean, God the Son is teaching us to pray to God the Father. And the first thing he says is this. You ought to pray in this way. Glorify the Father. You guys realize all the universe about him. Why did God create mankind? Good question. Isaiah 43, 7. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, listen, whom I created for my glory. Humanity was created for God's glory. You say, well, why did God redeem us? It must be all about us. That's why He came. It's all about us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? According to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glory and His grace we were created for his glory we were redeemed for his glory and eventually all of history will be summed up and all creation will shout glory to God and all heaven will redound with the praises of the redeemed saying glory to the lamb worthy to the lamb all glory will be to him it's all for him and so our prayers ought to reflect that and as Jesus is teaching us to pray he's saying also this align your heart Align your prayers with my purpose for the whole universe. Pray for the glory of God. Pray for my name to be hallowed. This is our prayer. Lord, do whatever it takes to hollow your name in my life. Do whatever it takes so that my life becomes a reflection of your own greatness. This is our heart pleading. This is what we're seeking after. This is what we're yearning for. Lord, your will be done in my life. Your name be glorified in my life. This is our greatest desire. This defines our life. This, this is the whole controlling passion of our lives. This shapes the goals of our lives. It's God, let the world see how glorious you are. Start with me. And so we praise our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Look at this next section. We're going to stop at the end of verse 10. He says, your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth, as it is in heaven. The fourth lesson in Christ's school of prayer. As he teaches us not to pray, just for things for ourselves. As he broadens our prayers to include more than just individualistic needs, but we pray our. As he focuses us not on ourselves and man-centered praying, but on God-centered praying. In this fourth lesson, he expands our prayers from trivial to cosmic. What do you mean by that, trivial to cosmic? I think often we can pray for trivial things. Trinkets, little needs that we want here and there, things to add to our life to make it a little easier. And Jesus is now bringing in some of the content of the things we should pray for. And in verse 10, he says, After we are praying for the name of God to be hallowed, we now pray for the kingdom. We now pray for the whole world to be doing the will of God. In other words, these prayers are not small prayers. These are cosmic prayers, giant prayers, huge prayers, universe-shaping prayers, world-altering prayers. You see this? I mean, this fires you up. This will get you excited to pray. Is that God is inviting you in to pray for the kingdom. And God is inviting you in to pray for the whole world to be a part of God's will being worked out. This is not trivial here. This will fire you up to get up in the morning. I was reading once a pastor who, uh, who had developed a habit of prayer and he was writing kind of a memoir of how he learned that and he said, the way I learned was by watching my dad. Uh, my dad would be praying every day. Before the sun's up, dad was up. Bottle open at the table. Almost like clockwork. He was there. He said one time there was a visiting missionary at their house and, and she was staying there and She noticed that the dad was feeling a little sick. It was not all well. He was a little under the weather. But she also noticed that every morning at 4 a.m. there was shuffling upstairs. The light of the office was on. And the father was up. And at one point the missionary said, hey, You've got to get some sleep. You're not feeling well. You, why don't you sleep in 4 a.m. early? Spend some more time in bed. And the response was, <laughs> I have too many things to pray for. I can't afford to sleep in. I don't think you get there. I don't think you get to the point where you're willing to get up before the sun, even when you're feeling sick when your prayer list is filled with small comforts, when your prayer list is about small trivialities, when your prayer list is about the trinkets of the world and the comforts of the flesh, I don't think that fires you up to get up early to pray. But what Jesus says here, when he says, no, I want to teach you how to pray big. I want to teach you to pray in a way that will wake you up in the morning because you're excited to get to the throne room to bring these things to God. Here's how you pray. Your kingdom come. Pray like that. Pray like this, your will be done on earth like it's in heaven. Friends, do you know that God right here in the person of Christ is inviting you in to the running of the universe? That your prayers really matter? Your prayers really shape reality? This is God saying to us, I want you to think big. I want you to pray bigger. It's more than just making sure you get through the day. Pray for a kingdom. See the kingdom in the Old Testament the New was the end of history. It's when Jesus returns to reclaim the Davidic throne and he sets up his kingdom in jerusalem to set up the millennial kingdom there to rule and reign for a thousand years and jesus is saying what you ought to be praying for is the coming kingdom the kingdom praying for the kingdom to come doesn't mean we're praying for the church to get bigger that's not what this means it's referring to a, a uh, the kingdom is coming it's coming like a freight train it'll arrive at some time in human history we're not sure when but what he's pr- saying that we should pray for is is essentially lord bring the end wrap it up lord That's what we're praying. Bring the end. Let the trumpet sound. Let the elect be gathered in. Let the kingdom be established on earth. Gather your people. Destroy your enemies. Establish justice. Let the kingdom come. That's what we're praying for. I don't know about you. I remember as a kid, I didn't have much desire for the kingdom to come. I didn't have much desire for heaven. I had so many things to do, right? I wanted to Play college basketball. I wanted to get married and have a family and all these things. And the thought that maybe Jesus would return wasn't exciting. It was a little more scary. I don't want Jesus to come back yet. I got life to live. But this has always been the desire of the church. The early Christians would pray a prayer, a short one word prayer Maranatha. You've probably heard that phrase. Come, Lord Jesus. That's what that meant. Come, Lord Jesus. You see, if our greatest desire is for God's name to be hallowed, if our our greatest desire is that Jesus gets the glory He deserves, then we will pray, Lord, bring Your kingdom so that Your entire globe is filled not with evil anymore, with sin being totally eradicated, but filled with people living for Your glory. Bring the kingdom. This is a radical prayer. Listen, this is a radical priority-shifting prayer. Follow me here. When you pray this prayer, you're asking for the end to come. And that can be scary, but it certainly laser-focuses our hopes, doesn't it? Can you pray for the end? Can you look around at all the unresolved things in your life all the untied knots, all the unfulfilled hopes and dreams, all the unfinished business, all the plans you have that have not yet been able to do, and can you say, Lord, come, upset my plans, upset my agenda, come establish your kingdom. And if we can't pray that, or if, we have a hard time praying that. Could it be that we're trying to build our own kingdom? And for Jesus to come would be in a big upset upsetting of our own kingdom. And so Jesus is expanding our prayers from just trivialities to cosmic, world-shaping prayers. Look at what he says next. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know what? For, a will, so for someone to be living out God's will, that means they've got to be saved. No one can live out God's will except those who are converted. This prayer, then, is a prayer for evangelism. This is a prayer for missions. This is a prayer for healthy churches. This is a prayer for discipleship. This prayer that God's will would be done is a prayer that the gospel would be going in power to the ends of the globe. See, Christ came that we would not live for ourselves but for him who lived and died for us. This is the gospel message that's not just meant for us to be getting a ticket to heaven but to reshape our whole priorities and the way we live. Now we live as people on mission and the prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray is that you and I should have a passion for God's name to be glorified in all the world, that everyone would be doing the will of God. And if that prayer will take place, it'll only happen as people are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. All that to say, listen, if you are committing to pray the Lord's prayer, you're praying a missionary prayer. You're praying a global prayer. How many angels in heaven do the will of God? Some of them? No, all of them. Every last one of them. And so if we are praying that everyone on earth would be doing the will of God in the same way it's done in heaven, we are praying that every last corner of the globe is filled with Christians. We're saying, God, extend your mighty hand of salvation, reach the unreached, Go to the lost people groups. Bring in every tongue and every tribe and every nation. We're praying, Lord, may I be a part of that. Do your will in me. But I'm also praying that people from all around the globe would come to know and love Jesus and do his will. This is a missionary prayer. It expands our prayers. And this is the kind of stuff that gets us fired up to pray. There's an app I sometimes use when I'm praying called the Joshua Project. And maybe you've heard of the Joshua Project. It's a, it goes through, and every day of the year, there's a different unreached people group that you can pray for. This morning, for example, was the Tuareg people. Never heard of them. In Niger, where it said that less than 1% of these people, less than 1% are evangelical or have any access to the gospel. This represents one of many countries in fact, you go, if you think about the globe, there are hundreds of places and languages and peoples that have no access to the gospel. That even if they had the question, what's the gospel, they couldn't find anyone to tell them because there's no church and there's no Christian around. Can you imagine that? See, maybe you've been lost, maybe you've been to. A place, or maybe your child has been lost. And it's a frightful thing. Maybe you feel confused, you're scared. It's a, a frightful thing to be lost. But you know what's scarier than being lost? It's being lost and knowing that no one's looking for you, being lost and knowing no one's coming, no one's caring, no one's praying. It's being lost and no one's even thinking about you. But the Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray that the will of God would be done in all the world, in all the earth, just like it is in heaven. We are praying for the nations to be brought in. We have seen in Revelation that every tongue and tribe and people and nation will be represented in the kingdom. We know that God wants to save people from all these places. And listen, we need to pray for them and pray that God would allow us to help them in whatever way. And Lord, Lord willing, we might be a small church, but let's pray big. And let's have big dreams of being able to reach the people in this world who don't yet have any gospel. I think this prayer teaches us to be global-minded Christians. Uh, focused on reaching the entire world in whatever way God allows us to. I hope... As we grow together as a church. Every pastor here is a missions pastor. Every member here is on mission. Every event or every gathering is for the grand purpose of the glory of God and the advance of the gospel that we live not for ourselves but for his glory. And that means if we're living for his glory, we know that he deserves worship from every square inch. And so we're concerned about every square inch. And as the Lord allows and as he stirs in our people and as he opens doors, we say, let us go and let's be a part of this. That'll get you up in the morning to pray. That's big enough to fire you up. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Lord, come and put an end to the wickedness and establish your kingdom. But we also want your will to be done. We want people to see who you are. We want people to walk in obedience. We want people to be redeemed. Just like the angels obey you in heaven. This is our desire. This is what we pray for. Is that we are a church that's centered on the glory of God and because we're centered on the glory of God we are focused on reaching all peoples and nations and tribes with his good news so I hope you see what Jesus is doing with our prayer lives and how he wants us to shape our prayers not individualistic but corporate not just for my own personal needs but for God and his glory not just here but everywhere. In this prayer, as we pray it, it's not a formula we recite, but as these priorities come into our lives, we begin laying the groundwork for God to do amazing things in response to prayer. We don't need more programs. We don't need more strategies. We need Total dependence on God expressed in the way we pray. No revival in human history has ever happened apart from this prayer being prayed. No community has ever been reached apart from these priorities being in our prayers. We want those things for here. And if we do, it starts with us on our knees leading the charge in prayer. And so real quick, we'll finish with this. I've been thinking about this text, mulling it over, thinking specifically how this applies to us and our church. How does Grace Church of Rancho Cucamonga be faithful to this text? How do we live this out? How do we take what Jesus said, pray then like this, into our context, specifically here, as we're fighting to work toward faithfulness and the glory of God, what do we do? I have three quick things. We will be and fight to be a God-centered church. His Word will be prioritized. Fads will come and go. Trends will rise and fall. But the reality of God, the great I Am, the all-existing, all-sufficient, eternal One, the first and the last, He will be our focus. He will be gloriously front and center as we look to His Word. We will want His perfections on display And as they thrill our hearts, they will fire us up to continue to reach who God has called us to reach. Revival doesn't come by thinking about revival. Revival doesn't come by thinking about the plans and the strategies. Reaching the community doesn't start by taking a survey about the community. It starts by looking at God and humbling ourselves before Him and praying for His mighty name to be hallowed where we are. We will be a God-centered church. Second, we're going to be fighting to be a pure church. We want God's name to be seen as holy, which means we need to live holy lives. We need to be a shining church, and there is no shining if there's no holiness. And so silent grudges or smoldering anger are things we need to deal with and fight for the unity and the love of one another. And in fact, this is really what we're aiming for in the next few months as we come together is to fight to really commit to one another so we can live pure lives together. We'll fight for purity. And so lastly, we'll obviously be a praying church. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. This church has no hope except that Jesus builds his church. Our church has no way to advance except that the word of God moves in power to save his people. We have nothing to offer except a saving gospel, a risen Christ, an active spirit, and in those things we have all we need. And so we will be a praying church asking God to do the work of blessing in this area and among us. One pastor said this I've partnered with attractional churches, mission churches, mega churches, medium and meager churches. Throughout, I've learned that these distinctions aren't the most important. If I had to draw a line, I've learned to see this it's between those churches that pray and those that don't. So, friends, which will we be? Will we join the ranks of those people in ages past who have stormed the throne room in prayer? corporately in our gatherings and privately as we walk with the Lord, pleading for His glory, wanting His kingdom to come, asking that He would do the impossible. A.C. Dixon said this, and I want this to be ringing in our ears as we close. He said, when we rely on organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely on education, we get what education can do. When we rely on eloquence, we get what eloquence can do, and so on. But when we rely on prayer, we get what God can do. So let's pray. So our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Glorify your name. Let it be set apart. Let it be unique. Let it be treasured. Let it be in a whole different category. Let it be other among us. Let us treat you as the most supreme affection. Let us see you as our greatest joy. Let us pursue you like we pursue silver or gold. Lord, let us hallow your name. And Lord, let us prioritize your kingdom. And pray for you to return. And pray for you to wrap up history. And Lord, let us pray that your will would be done. On earth as it is in heaven. That you would even now begin answering this prayer among us as we seek to walk in obedience. That you would answer this prayer among the nations as people hear the gospel. Of the dying and rising Christ and they repent and believe and follow. So, Lord, let this be done. Let this be done here in our church first. And, Lord, as you give opportunity, let us be part of the work as it's done in all the world. We ask these things not for ourselves, not for our glory, but for you. In Jesus' name.